Welcome to Read By, a new podcast where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Hisham Matar reads a chapter from his newest book, A Month in Siena. To learn more from Matar about his choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Hisham Matar. Hello, I am very pleased to be speaking to you today, and I send my best wishes and greetings to my friends at the 92nd Street Y and everyone listening. It is uh, the afternoon here, uh, I'm in London, uh, and it's the 3rd of April 2020. Thinking about what I might read you, I thought that I'd like to read you from my uh, last book, A Month in Siena, which came out in October of last year. It's a book that uh, is a sort of record of a time of solitude, of being alone in Siena for a month, to look at paintings that I've been thinking about for 25 years by that stage. Paintings that I have found strangely appealing from the so-called Sienese school of art from the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. Uh, So not exactly the most obvious paintings to appeal to my 19-year-old self when I first saw them. And I was both intrigued and perplexed by that appeal. It coincided with the loss of my father, who was kidnapped and imprisoned in Libya. He was a political dissident and eventually disappears. 33 years later, I go to Libya to look for him uh, and also to return to the country of my childhood. And in that return, I, I wrote a book about it called The Return. And when finishing that book, I felt maybe this was the right time now to go to Siena, to allow myself to enter that city that has intrigued me for so long and that I have not always for reasons that were clear to me, avoided on my visits to Italy, which, believe me, are plenty. (laughs) But I've always avoided going to Siena because I suppose I wanted to go when I had a good stretch of time to give myself over to it, to uh, look at those paintings over an extended period of time. Anyway, I did go on finishing the book. And that period of time between finishing the book and before it was published, so when it was still as it were, a private affair. I uh, I went there. The cover story, of course, that I told myself was to that I'm there to look at the paintings and maybe to rest and to allow myself a very rare indulgence of not working, not um, doing anything that seems to have a clear uh, purpose. To, in other words, take my pleasure seriously, which is something that I... Uh, have been learning over the years that I can't recommend highly enough. It's a very worthwhile uh, activity to take one's pleasure seriously. But then when I was there, I I started to notice that actually I, it wasn't just um, it wasn't just for the the obvious reasons. The cover story, in other words, was a cover story, authentic and genuine. But beneath it, there was this other unspeakable desire to come to terms with, to mark my uh, failed attempt to find what happened to my father, to find his whereabouts, when, where exactly he had died, how was he killed, where his remains might be. 
uh, and to contend really with the possibility now seems to me almost a certainty uh, that I must learn to live uh, the rest of my days without knowing uh, the answers to these questions. And so the book becomes a record of my looking at these paintings, becomes about something that I've always thought about, which is to what extent a work of art is a place, a location that we go to, a landing place that we stop at and that helps to curate and excite our enthusiasms, our ideas, uh, the way that we think about the world. That art is not just, of course, uh, a delight. It is that very much, at least to me, a delight and, and, and can entertain and, uh, and distract, absolutely, but also that it is a vital a geography, a location that we go to so as to 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 think about things uh, and to to try to comprehend this incredible event of being a human being, of being the inheritor of histories, but also a independent agent in the present, and that complexity between those two tides. It also becomes a a way for me to think about death, about not only because the black death, the so-called Black Death, the plague, interrupted the progress of the artists who, were, who formed the Sienese school, uh, and in fact uh, interrupted everything uh, and really redefined art and the history of art. It was such a major turning point in the mid-1300s uh, when it struck Europe and the Middle East and most of the world. It meant that the human imagination was rewired in some ways that aren't always uh, certain and seem to me still evident in our present. But don't worry, I'm not going to read to you the chapter on the, on the plague. I do think that's the obvious thing to read you in this time of, of isolation, of this sad and, and troubled and anxious uh, moment we are all sharing. That reading the part about the plague is, is, uh, is an obvious thing to do, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read you something else that I think is maybe, maybe even more obvious, which is a chapter in A Month in Siena called The Bench. And it is a sort of portrait of the quality, I hope, of the solitude that I had there. Because as we all know, solitude is never always the same. Our moments of being alone... Uh, have a variety in them. There's a wide repertoire of silences and solitudes that we experience, I think. But also it's a chapter that shows the thing that I lament these days, the thing that I miss a lot these days, which is, I must admit, one of the reasons why I've chosen, not always for convenient uh, uh, reasons, to live in cities. Uh, I live in in London and in, New and, and in New York. And that is the the spontaneous, accidental, um, so always surprising way in which our life uh, rubs against the lives of others, of strangers, uh, encounters with them, the conversations that we have with them, the glances that we uh, exchange. Um, and that that terrain, I feel, has been complicated by this, by this virus. It has made... Uh, the thing that I find so exciting about living in cities, about uh, living with uh, strangers, my enthusiasm for the cosmopolitan space uh, has been complicated by this virus by making us feel a little bit threatened by 
one another a little bit, at least it stands that risk, and we must definitely resist it, of feeling that we might, in very real and dangerous and consequential ways, be contaminated by one another. And the chapter I'm reading uh, to you, about to read to you now, is, is, is one that has these instances of uh, engagements, surprising engagements uh, with uh, strangers. And also, I think, because we are all um, locked in our rooms, uh, uh, I wanted to take you away, as it were, to take you on a little trip uh, to Siena, um, speaking to you from the room uh, where I write, which is across the street from where I live. You could Probably, if you hear anything in the background, I hope, <laughs> apart from that door that slammed outside, I hope that you will hear these beautiful birds outside of my window. It is one of the gifts of this uh, strange and sad time that the bird song, particularly in cities where you hardly hear it, is just so vivid and uninterrupted. And seemed more seems more patient somehow. The birds seem more patient with one another than with us. And uh, it's really a delight that I hope wherever you are, you could enjoy. Okay, very well. I will start reading. The following morning, the sun shone and I went out early. This is the time when I would usually write. And yet, I had no sense of obligation that day. Every time I finished a book, I felt emptied by it, but I had never experienced this more severely than on completing my last, the one on my return to Libya and my failed search for my father. I sat opposite the Duomo, its facade blinding and icing white in the light. The square was empty. An elderly black woman walked across it. We greeted one another. She sat beside me, a polite distance away, and began talking in Italian. Quickly perceiving my handicap, she spoke with that generosity of outsiders, uttering each word clearly, gesticulating and looking me straight in the eyes. Her voice echoed easily against the buildings and the stone slab floor of the vacant piazza, which with no soul in sight, appeared uncertain in scale, as though it could have been significantly larger or, indeed, smaller than it was. It seemed both a grand space and yet one as intimately private as a courtyard. What I gathered from what the woman told me was that she was originally from Nigeria and that she had been living in Italy for 23 years, and was now, finally, eligible for a passport. She pointed to a grand building to one side of the square. That's the ministry, she said. What will you do when you get your passport, I asked. Visit my country, she said. And in the silence that followed, she repeated, more to herself, Yes, my country. Something about her made me think of my mother. I wanted to go to the Pinacoteca, the museum that houses several of the paintings I have, for so long now, been wanting to see. 
lying in bed the night before, just before I fell asleep. I felt that rush of excitement I recognized from childhood when knowing with trembling certainty that as I lay in bed, the sea was still there and would continue to be there throughout the night and morning too when I would wake up. I had fallen asleep imagining those paintings in the darkened museum rooms of the Pinacoteca. But now, in the early morning, sitting in the square beside the woman who had been waiting nearly for as long as I have been wanting to visit Siena, close to a quarter of a century, to return home, I felt it was not yet the right time to go to the paintings. I waited with a Nigerian lady until the ministry opened. I wished her luck. She placed a hand on my cheek and thanked me. Her skin felt cool and dry. We embraced, and I watched her until she entered the building. I walked on and watched the city wake and busy itself. I followed several individuals from a distance. I told myself that I was undertaking this strange and disreputable activity in order to see how locals navigated Siena, to catch a glimpse of their daily lives, to live, as it were, in their wake. But the truth was simpler, more bodily than intellectual, more to do with rhythm than ideas. I simply wanted, like a stonemason grinding his chisel on a rough slab, to sharpen myself against the city. I followed a man to his place of work. From about 15 meters away, I trailed a woman and her young boy. When they arrived at his school, she stood a long time watching him through the gates until he entered the building. She remained there for a minute or two, looking up, presumably at the window of his classroom. I followed her to another address and left when she entered an unmarked building. That day, Siena was to me as intimate as a locket you could wear around your neck, and yet as complex as a maze. It completely shielded me from the horizon. My compass could only be guided by it, by its twists and turns, its maneuvers and decisions, by its tastes and purposes. Siena is its own North Star. And, as it is the case that those who are jealous are to some extent invested in control, Siena too seemed to me that day to be anxious about my freedom and fidelity. I had never been anywhere so determined, so full of intention, and so concerned about my presence. For, no matter which way I turned, the city seemed to be the one determining the pace and direction of my walks. There and then, I believed, I could spend a lifetime here, in this foreign city where I had, for so long and for some mysterious reason, longed to be. It was still not the right moment to go to the Pinacoteca. I returned to the flat, ate and slept a little, then spread the map on the small table that stood between the two windows, I decided, in order to keep new my sense of the city, I would walk every day to one of its boundaries, leave through one of the city gates, and then, once I had lost sight of Siena, return to it again. 
By the afternoon, I left the map behind and wandered out toward the southwestern edge. The streets narrowed as though each were defending its own territory. One after the other, they descended out into the periphery, fading. I was now by the city wall, looking out onto a vast landscape. The openness seemed strange and marvelous. In these few days since my arrival, Siena had already succeeded in making my eyes unaccustomed to the horizon. I suddenly felt I understood and could see from Siena's point of view that infinity is a claustrophobic prospect, that it is perfectly appropriate, given the chaotic nature of life, to cordon off an area in which to interpret ourselves, where one can decide what is important, what is to be privileged, and what to be left out, determine the axes of the main thoroughfares and the arrangement of streets between them. And somehow these boundaries seem to be a circuitous acknowledgement of nature's power, its freedom and confidence, its enthusiasm for the light, its open-heartedness. I looked out at the cypresses and olive trees, the metallic light on the hills. The air was luminous and moist, and the sky glowed as if licked with a porcelain glaze. I stood there for a long time, all about me, was silence. Then a couple of school children approached, one on his mobile phone reporting his day at school, and the other with his head down as he struggled up the hill with a heavy rucksack on his back. More children appeared behind them, some with parents and others unaccompanied. They were all leaving the large square building at the bottom of the hill. I wished I knew a family here, as the company and conversations of children, I thought, would truly help me to improve my Italian. This language I can just about understand, but feel an impediment to speak. Then I heard a man talking in Arabic to his young boy and girl. He looked my age, and his face was like that of people I had grown up with. I said hello in Arabic. He stopped, greeted me, and seemed both surprised and a little amused. Where are you from? he said. Libya, and yourself? Jordan. He had arrived in Siena thirty years ago, he told me. That was the same period of time I had spent in London, I thought. His hair was black and curly, like mine would be if I let it grow. His name was Adam. My loves, he said, speaking to his children. Karim, Selma, Greet your uncle, Hisham. They smiled and extended their small hands. Do you need help, he said. Anything at all. No, thank you, I said. Are you here for work? Do you need help with papers, visas and such? No, no, I said, smiling. Really, I, I know the place. I can take you around, help translate. Do you speak Italian? I don't, but I understand a little, I said. Then I can go with you. I have a car, he said. You are so kind, but really I'm, I'm fine. I'm just visiting. I've always wanted to see Siena, to see the art. He looked at me as though, having judged that I was hiding my true purpose, he was resigned to my privacy. 
His daughter, Salma, was looking at something in her hand, but Karim was following our conversation, turning his head from his father to me as we spoke. Now the boy looked at me and smiled. His father pointed up the hill. See that street over there, he said, the one with the church. I am number 90. My name is on the doorbell. Anything you need. Consider me your brother here. Although such sentiments are not uncommon in Arabic society, Adam's words moved me. I had no doubt from his eyes, his face, his entire demeanor, and also from the kindness of his children, that he meant every word. I wouldn't think of bothering you, I said. But perhaps we can have a coffee sometime. Take my number, he said. Asked me to read it back to him. Excellent, he said. Now give me a missed call. He took out his phone, and we both stared at it until it lit up. He immediately registered my number, writing my name in full. We said goodbye. He walked up the hill, Karim and Salma keeping up a faithful trail behind him. I walked in the opposite direction. Something about the encounter, how at once effortless and unexpected it was, made me optimistic about my time here. I continued walking down the hill. I wanted to be inside the landscape, to find a way out of the city, to cross all the new buildings that now encircle Siena and enter the hills and stand among the trees that Lorenzetti painted. I went out of the city wall and the sound of the air changed, becoming open and hollow, like when, having pressed your hands tightly on your ears, you release them. Now there was no shade, and I felt the sun warming my back. Eventually, at the end of the road, I reached a dead end. There was a gate through it. I entered and found myself inside a cemetery. It was the size of a small city park. Most of the headstones had a photographic portrait of the deceased, and sometimes two, one when young, and another near the time of death. Several of the dead were buried beside their spouses, who, it was more often than not the case, followed them a year or two later. Some of the dead had passed away decades ago, and several over a century passed, yet it was clear that their descendants still visited, for the graves were carefully maintained, and fresh flowers brought to them. The women on the headstones looked familiar. Theirs were the same concerned faces of the women of my childhood, of that Nigerian woman I had met earlier in the Piazza del Duomo. Faces that worry. Faces that are unsure of the prospects. And it seemed to me then that these Sienese women suspected when their picture was taken, that the captured image would outlast them. They looked at the camera with wearied compliance. I was deeply affected by them, and it somewhat surprised me. An avenue, lined with high cypresses, cut through the graves. There was a bench on it. I thought of taking it, but then continued. I passed a couple walking slowly, arm in arm, toward the exit. They quietly wished me a good evening, and I, also in a soft tone, 
returned the greeting. I remembered how I liked cemeteries, their seriousness and formality, that in them one is always encouraged to speak softly and sparingly. I went to the limit, hoping to find a view of the open country, maybe even a passage into it. I did not expect what I saw. Turned out I had all along been in the old part of the cemetery, a small area by comparison with these vast terraces I was now looking down at, battalions upon battalions of headstones. The scale was unfathomable. It is one thing to consider the particular intimacy of a single grave, another to glimpse death's endless appetite. The deceased outnumber the living. The present is the golden rim of a black cloth. How outrageous it is to be alive, I thought. It filled me with such enthusiasm and dark pride for my race, for how brave and heroic we are in the face of the undeniable evidence that life cannot be maintained, that regardless of what armor we choose, all things must pass. I continued walking toward the new end, or the end I now could see. When I reached there, I could touch the olive trees on the other side of the low wall. They were young and silver in the light. I could have easily climbed over and stood among them, but for some reason I did not. I imagined bringing friends here. I pictured not telling them where we were heading, engaging them instead in a conversation about a completely different topic, so as to have them stumble upon the cemetery very much as I just did, not out of the wish to unsettle them, but rather to share with them the same sense of discovery. Then I thought, what a terrible idea that was. Suddenly, I felt someone was standing right behind me. I turned and found a bench, tucked away, facing the landscape. It had the last of the sun, and an unusual aspect, one private, but yet with an open, panoramic view of the country. A good place from which to look out, I thought. A good place to hide. A good place to cry. I sat down and hoped no one would ever remove this bench, that it would remain there till the end of time. To one side, there were three large stone basins, water for flowers. Thank you for listening. My name is Hisham Matar, and I was reading to you from A Month in Siena. Goodbye. Nine Two Wise Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings of literature for over eighty years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you enjoyed this recording, please share it with a friend. Tag us on Twitter or Facebook, Nine Two Y Poetry Center, and let us know your favorites. If you extra enjoyed and you're able in this uncertain time. 
please visit 92y.org slash help now to donate to support 92y and its new digital programming. We rely on your contributions. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great readings at 92y.org slash archives. <laughs>